You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. If you have Bibles, uh, you can go ahead and make your way to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 uh, is where you'll find uh, today's text page 967 if you're using one of those, um, those black hardcover Bibles. We are continuing and actually starting to near the end now of uh, a series that we're calling Faithful Presence, The Way of Christ in a Post-Christian World. Uh, and today we're talking about money, uh, everybody's favorite subject in church for sure. Uh, the Bible has a lot to say about money. Jesus has a lot to say in his teachings about, about money. Uh, and in years past, if you've been with us, we've explored various texts in Scripture uh, that teach us about the money's relationship to the heart and what it says about what we value and treasure. And we've looked at, at Scriptures that talk about uh, what the purpose of money is, what we should use it for and what we should not use it for. This morning, rather than trying to do a survey of everything the Bible teaches about money, uh, I want to focus in and think specifically about how money is part of our pursuit of faithful presence. How is, what does money have to do with us being God's faithfully present people, followers of Jesus Christ, uh, in this time and in this place? The way that we think about money, the way that we use money, uh, has incredible power to display the beauty of God's grace to the world. Though money can be, and for Uh, though money is perhaps one of our greatest liabilities, money can become really one of the most powerful instruments we have to proclaim and to display the gospel in the midst of a world, in the midst of a cultural moment where we're obsessed with money but blind to its real purpose and what it's really, what it's really for. And so one text where we see this play out comes in a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church, to Christians in a city called Corinth. Uh, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 15 specifically. But just to set this up for you, uh, it's the middle of the first century. It's probably 55 to 60 AD, most likely. Uh, Paul is now on his third missionary journey around the Mediterranean world. And as he's on this journey, the, the Christians back in Jerusalem, which is the hub of the rapidly expanding early church, the Christians back in Jerusalem are suffering. Uh, there's famine, they're in extreme poverty, they're suffering. And so as Paul is traveling around the Mediterranean, as he's sharing the good news about Jesus, as he's planting churches, as he's establishing and equipping leaders for those churches, he's also taking up a collection for those Christians in Jerusalem. He's asking uh, young churches, in some cases brand new churches and baby Christians, to give substantial financial resources to bless and care for other Christians who, who those, those Christians have never met, but now with whom they share this deep identity, this deep unity because of Jesus. So let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into today's text. God, our Father, we ask now that you would grant us by your Spirit wisdom and your revelation uh, in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We ask that you would, uh, this morning, in these moments we have together, open the eyes of our hearts that they might be enlightened. Uh, help us to know the hope to which you have called us. 
which as Paul puts it in Ephesians 1, is the riches of a glorious inheritance in the saints. Help us to know this morning, Father, the immeasurable greatness of your power that is by your Spirit, even in this very moment, at work within us. And we pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1-15. through 15. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Verse 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched completing it out of what you have. Verse 12, For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. This is God's word. Uh, if I could sum up this passage in a single sentence, uh, it would be this. Because in Jesus, money is grace, our greed becomes generosity, and our guilt becomes genuine love. That's a lot there, so let me say it again. Because in Jesus, money is grace, our greed becomes generosity, and our guilt becomes genuine love. And we'll spend the rest of our time really unpacking the three really weighty phrases that make up that sentence. Money as grace, greed becoming generosity, and then guilt becoming genuine love. So first, money as grace. Uh, I don't think I'm going to have to convince really any of you of this. Uh, we are a money-sick people in a money-sick culture. That's true for us. We, we struggle with that, even those of us who claim to follow Christ and pursue that. We certainly live in the midst of a culture and among friends and family members and people, money-sick people in a money-sick culture. We either think about money all the time, it becomes a, an obsession, an all-consuming obsession, or we don't think about it enough. Uh, we become dependent in an, un, uh, in an unhealthy way. We become passive and irresponsible, and we, we count on other people or other institutions to do all of our thinking and all of our handling of money for us. 
compound that, uh, we're materialistic and we're greedy and we're impatient. Luxuries become necessities become entitlements, and that happens in a millisecond. And in all of it, money, along with power and along with sex, make up of things that we are prone to ruin our lives by. Into the midst of this, this money sickness, then, there's no shortage of self-appointed physicians offering competing and contradictory advice and prescriptions. Uh, see, see, most people, if not all people, recognize something of the importance of money. They recognize something of the, the real benefit it is to have money, and they recognize something of the difficulty it is to navigate decisions surrounding money. So everybody's got a prescription, a school of thought that they buy for, for how we're supposed to do things. For example, in a 2017 column for the New York Times, Ann Hatchett wrote about giving up shopping for a year, and out of that, making a commitment to live more simply. So maybe that's the, maybe that's the answer. We, we don't shop for a year. We fast from shopping. We commit to live more simply. Uh, Tom and Donna, characters on the sitcom Parks and Rec, if you're familiar with Parks and Rec, they pick one day a year to, as they put it, treat yourself. To treat yourself. So with money, be a little bit more reserved for 364 days a year. But on that 365th, barred blowout, whatever to buy, buy it, and buy a lot of it. Uh, this actually, I didn't know this till this week, that's actually become a real thing, not just in the sitcom world. October 13th is now officially Treat Yourself Day in America. So I guess if you want to part participate and do that, uh, October 13th is the date. Martin Frisden wrote a book some years back entitled How to Be a Billionaire. Uh, so he's just one among really hundreds and thousands of voices prescribing more money as the answer. And oh, coincidentally, selling a pathway and a plan to make that happen. Right? So if you want a real surefire way to get rich, be the guy who tells other people how they can get rich. Whether you are rich or not, if you tell other people how they can, you'll probably line your own pockets pretty well. And then Dave Ramsey, maybe more, more well-known in kind of the Christian subculture, his key line is, live like no one else now, so you can live like no one else later. But depending on how you hear that or the way it's said in different, different moments, that can sound like a call to, to generosity. It can also sound sometimes like a call to like, treat yourself just in retirement, not now. Just wait till retirement and do it later. Some prescriptions are significantly more helpful and significantly more grounded in truth and reality than others. And to be clear, the Bible has plenty of prescriptions, too. plenty of commands about money. We read even in this text. Let's start here. What differentiates Christians, what makes us Christians, is not that we have principles and prescriptions and commands about money, not even that we have better prescriptions and commands about money. It's that the God we worship is the God who owes us nothing but has given us everything. The God we worship is the one who owes us nothing but has given us everything. As Jay Gresham Machen once said, what I need first of all is not exhortation but a gospel. Not directions for saving myself but a knowledge of how God has saved me. Have you any good news? That's the question I ask of you. And to the people in Corinth and to the people in the Mediterranean world in the first century, Paul's answer to that question is a resounding yes. 
verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You and I are utterly incapable of curing our money sickness. Prescriptions, no matter what they are or where they come from, will never dig deeply enough. And so our hope of using money well, of caring neither too little nor too much about money, it's only possible if we are first and then always looking to the giver, to the generous one, who is God himself. God the Son, what Paul is saying here in verse 9, God the Son, Jesus Christ, from whom and through whom and to whom are all things, left the unfathomable riches of heaven. He took on flesh and he entered into the poverty of our sin and of its effects. That Jesus, by his poverty, both a material poverty and a spiritual poverty, Jesus became poor in spirit, might humble. of his glorious inheritance, we get God in his kingdom forever. That's what Paul's saying here. He's not saying give some of your money now so you can get really rich in this life. It's not a prosperity gospel. It is saying, it is saying give, Jesus gave up his wealth to invite you into the riches of his inheritance forever, which is life with God. Life with God. Have you any good news? We have the only good news. Apart from this, Apart from this, not only are you and I without hope and without God in the world, but the best that we could ever do when it comes to our finances, when it comes to our money, is either a life of greed or a life of guilt. The best we could do. But instead, because of Jesus, money is grace. We start to see money is grace. And that's true in two ways. It's grace to us. Any money that you have Any possessions that you own comes ultimately from the one who owns everything. And I don't say that to you to take away any hard work or effort or intelligence you've applied, only to say, what do you have that you did not receive? The the time and place in which you were born, the faculties that you have mentally, physically, the opportunities that you've had in life, even those of us who have worked diligently, what do you have that you did not receive? So money is grace to us, and money is grace through us. It's a ministry of grace to others, which is meant to point to the grace and the generosity of this God who owed us nothing but gave us everything. And that's why here in this text in verse 1, and then again in verse 6, and then again in verse 7, Paul refers to this collection, this offering for the Jerusalem Christians as what? As grace. He doesn't even call it an offering. He he calls it an act of grace. He calls it a grace. Because of Jesus, we see money as grace. And this is what transforms our greed into generosity. And this is what transforms our guilt into genuine love, which is the other two things that Paul talks about in this text. So second, let's consider how our greed becomes generosity. The Corinthians, the the Christians there in Corinth, uh, they were a relatively rich group of Christians. In verse 14, Paul refers to their abundance at the present time. Uh, Corinth, we know from from history, uh, was a metropolitan melting pot city. Uh, It was a center of commerce. It was a center of culture. 
And so evidently, in the process of planting a church there, which was five to ten years or so before Paul wrote this letter, uh, Paul and then the other leaders of the church that came after him had seen some relatively wealthy people in Corinth become Christians and then become part of, of this church. So now in this letter, Paul is appealing to them to be generous out of the abundance that they have. In the process, actually where he starts is by highlighting the example of churches in another region around the Mediterranean world, in a place called Macedonia. Uh, Macedonia is a region to the north of Corinth. And if you're familiar at all with the book of Acts, if you've read through uh, the New Testament ever in your life, Macedonia includes cities like Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Um, some of those names maybe, maybe stand out to you when you start to put all those pieces together. But in contrast to Corinth, the churches there in Macedonia were poor. Extreme poverty is how Paul describes it in verse 2. Despite their poverty, though, Macedonian churches have overflowed in a wealth of generosity in this collection for the saints in Jerusalem. They have not only given, Paul says, according to their means, they have given beyond their means. Now, logically, you and I would think that it would be easier for the wealthy to give than it is for the poor to give. Wealthy people have more, right? That's what makes them wealthy. Would it not be then easier for them to part with some of that wealth? Actually, no. Actually, no. In 2011, the wealthiest Americans, those in the top 20% of earnings and income, the top 20% gave on average 1.3% of their income away to charity. In contrast, the bottom 20% in earnings and income, the bottom 20% gave 3.2% of their income away, so more than twice as much from a percentage standpoint. And writing for The Atlantic, a writer named Ken Stern put it this way, he said, one of the most surprising and perhaps confounding facts of charity in America is that the people who can least afford to give are the ones who donate the greatest percentage of their income. The ones who can least afford to give are those donating the greatest percentage of their income. In other words, in other words, more money will not make you more generous. Can we just expose the lie and the folly of that thought? Because I've had it, and maybe you have too. More money will not make us more generous. In fact, it's just as likely to make us greedier. It's more likely to make us greedier than it is to make us generous. One of the biggest lies about money is that more of it will satisfy you. And that's why years ago, John D. Rockefeller, who was one of the richest men in America at the time he was being interviewed, he was asked, how much is enough? I mean, you got so much money, Mr. Rockefeller, how much is enough? And his answer was, one more dollar. One more dollar. The more we have, the more prone we are to embrace this delusion that we are the captains of our souls, that we are the masters of our fate, and therefore to close our fists all the more tightly around what we have. But here are these extremely poor Macedonians, verse 4, begging earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Have you ever begged someone for the opportunity to give your money away? Have you ever begged someone else for the opportunity to give something away? I can't say that I have. I've found a, a great joy in learning to be generous. I've found a great joy in giving money away. I cannot say that I've ever begged someone for the chance to do that. And think about this. 
Only the grace of God can turn the world completely upside down like this. People in extreme poverty, see, they're used to begging others. But when they beg others all the t- almost all the time, they're begging to receive something, are they not? Here, here they're begging not to receive something. They're begging to be part of giving something away. Why? Because God has lavished his grace on them. They didn't have to go to God and beg for his grace. God freely gave it to them in Christ, and all they had to do was to receive it, to believe that Jesus actually accomplished something that counted on their behalf. And so in response, the Macedonian Christians will now do anything for the privilege and joy of being instruments of the grace of God through them. They will part with even the little bit that they do have for the chance of that. That's going to be a lot harder for the wealthier Corinthians. They're going to have to, verse 7, as Paul puts it, work to excel in the grace of giving. They're naturally good at some things. They excel in faith, knowledge. Paul mentions a couple things there. Giving, generosity, may not ever be their natural strength. It may not be a spiritual gift for the Corinthians. And until the day they die, as wealthier Christians, they might be fighting the impulse to close their fists, to wait until someone begs them rather than begging for the chance to give. They might be fighting the impulse to accumulate just one more dollar and be generous after that. Instead, Paul says in verse 9, remember grace. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is the most generous giver, and he has lavished his grace not only on the extremely poor Christians in Macedonia, but on the wealthy Christians in Corinth. And his grace alone is, is going to be the thing that will pry open their closed hands so that they would be generous people. Now, generally speaking, and I'm sure this surprises none of us in the room, our church much more resembles Corinth than it does Macedonia. Uh, very few people in this church community, in this church family at present, are in extreme poverty. Uh, many of us, by contrast, are either at or above the median household income for the zip codes in which we live. And the zip codes in which most of us live are themselves 10 to 20% higher than the median household income for the United States as a whole. We could take that a lot of ways. Here's where I want to go with that this morning. I want you to join me this morning in rejoicing in the transformation that God's grace has brought. And here's what I mean by that. Statistically, you and I should not be very generous people but you are. But you are. So many people in this church community are incredibly generous people. Nearly every time we raise funds for something or we collect an item for some kind of donation for one of our uh, partners in Mercy Ministry, we meet or exceed the goal. Last year, Bethesda Mission, we nearly busted the shocks on Keith's truck loading it up with cans of fruit cocktail when they asked for fruit cocktail for their homeless shelters. Uh, New Hope, when they do the Christmas blessing, We always blow the goal out of the water. We actually helped buy New Hope of a mobile food pantry a couple years ago because they needed a mobile food pantry to serve more people. Uh, Last year, some of the folks from Peace Promise were here, and they shared that it was actually a Christmas Eve offering from this church all the way back in 2012 that encouraged them to go all in on the work that they are doing and have been doing since to combat human trafficking in central Pennsylvania. A couple weeks ago, uh, when we shared that we had surpassed our goal for the baby bottle blast and raising funds for Capital Area Pregnancy Center, there was spontaneous clapping in the room, which is about as 
charismatic and Pentecostal as we get, you know, in our, in our circles. It was like a revival was starting to break out because we were so excited about the, the generosity we got to participate in. And I always want to remind you of this because I really believe this is part of the work that God has done and is doing and will do through this specific local church. The first year we planted this church, the first year, actually within the first six months, we not only became financially self-sufficient, we actually were able to give away $20,000 in the first six months to other church plants and to other ministries of mercy. That doesn't happen, except that by the grace of God, it does happen. And it has happened. And I invite you just to pause and celebrate and rejoice in that. From where I sit, generosity is one of the most evident fruits of the grace of God at work in and through this church, this body, this local, this local expression of the body of Christ. Now, we struggle in some things. We have a lot of growth as followers of Jesus in a lot of different areas. God knows we need more transformation. We need to become more and more like Christ in so many things, including generosity. But we who might otherwise be greedy, we who might easily be greedy, we who perhaps in our own lives maybe once were greedy, the grace of God has made us generous. May God make us even more so. May we, as Paul puts it here, excel still more until we find ourselves begging for the favor of giving more away. So it's because of grace that greed becomes generosity. And then third and finally, because of grace, guilt becomes genuine love. Guilt becomes genuine love. If greed is one of the biggest temptations for wealthier people, then the other is guilt. The other is guilt. When we realize uh, that it's wrong to be greedy, when we realize the futility of trying to accumulate money to no end, to be closed-handed with what we have, we might actually quickly turn around and start to use money for the good of others. The question is, are we now doing that because we feel guilty? Or are we doing that because we actually love God and love other people and have a chance to demonstrate that love? Now, on the outside, those two things look nearly identical. And both both types of giving, both motivations actually help a lot of people. A lot of guilt-fueled money has been used for incredible good both throughout history and in the present day. Guilt is a really powerful motivator, is it not? Guilt is a really powerful motivator. It's a strong emotion that will move us to do things that we would not otherwise ordinarily do. The comedian Jim Gaffigan once joked about the commercials that used to be on TV for rescue dogs, for the ASPCA. Anybody remember those commercials? I don't even know if they're still, if they're still airing or not. But all these commercials, I'm sure you've seen something like this, if not this specific one. But they show all of these faces of sad dogs and neglected dogs. They set it all to a soundtrack of Sarah McLaughlin songs. And, and Jim, Jim Gaffigan, the comedian, jokes at one point. He says, like, at one point in the commercial, even the dogs are like, this is a little heavy-handed, Sarah. This is a little heavy-handed. It's a guilt motivator. It's a guilt motivator. In contrast, though, to the guilt motivation, Paul writes here in verse 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. That your love is genuine. This particular collection, and really, any specific opportunity you would have to give money away, in and of itself, zooming into that one opportunity, 
It's not a command that you must do it. The Corinthians don't have to give, they don't have to contribute to these saints in Jerusalem. And Paul actually goes on to write down in chapter 9, verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now there are commands about money in Scripture. God commands his people to give to the poor. God commands his people to give to the work of the church. By all measures, even as Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees at one point for neglecting the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, in that same rebuke of them, he's actually upholding the concept of the tithe, the idea that we give the first 10% of what we bring in to carry on the work of God in the world and to care for people and to bless and serve the church and work through the church. So Christians have principles and prescriptions and commands about money too, but what makes us Christians is not those commands. It's that before all of those commands and underneath all of those commands, we are constantly looking to, we are constantly dependent upon the redeeming work of the one, as we've said, who owed us nothing but gave us everything. God's grace to us, God's generosity was not driven by guilt. When God looked out on the havoc that our sin wreaked in the world, on our own lives, on the good creation he made, when he saw out and saw, looked out and saw the corruption, he didn't feel guilt. And really for God, there was no guilt to feel on his part. But imagine if John 3.16 read, for God felt so guilty about the condition of the world. God felt so guilty about the condition of the world that he sent his son. No, no, God felt sorrow. God felt compassion More than anything, God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Money, anything we give, but especially money, is a reflection of what we love. And by the same token, it's an opportunity for us to demonstrate love and what we love or who we love. So really, though it's an incredibly powerful motivator, guilt is a cheap counterfeit. It's a cheap counterfeit to the real thing. Christians don't give money away. We don't use money to bless and serve other people because we have to. We do it because we get to. Because few things like it in the world give us the opportunity to participate in and to extend the genuine love that God has for the world and for others in which we ourselves have received in Jesus. So here's the key. When when guilt motivates our use of money, if you find that in your heart, as I do at times, that it's guilt that's, tr- that's compelling you to, to give money, that's because deep down, we believe there's still something left for us to earn. That there's something that, that we need to do, that we can do, to secure God's favor or to secure good standing with him. When guilt motivates our use of money, we're not actually free to give as an act of love for God, an act of love for other people. In a really sneaky, subtle way, what we're doing when we give from a place of guilt is giving a gift to ourselves. We're giving to secure something for ourselves, even if it's just a relief of the guilt for five seconds before we feel it again. It's essentially just like a, a papal indulgence 500 years ago, where you were invited to buy your way out of guilt and buy your way out of sin. And it's incredibly effective. That's why St. Peter's is as gorgeous as it is. That's how they paid for it, or indulgences. It's just the complete opposite of the actual gospel of God's grace. 
And so Paul says here, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not the guilt. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel can't do enough. You can't give enough, and you never could. But God himself in Christ did and has. That God is the genuinely loving one. And our guilt, when it comes to giving, or really anything else, our guilt is transformed by the assurance that God's love for us is not rooted in how much or how often we give, but on the fact that he has given his own son for the life of the world. That's the gospel of God's grace. So, there's no financial appeal today. Uh, we're not kicking off some kind of fundraising campaign for, for something new. Uh, if we had, I would have asked Jordan like an hour ago to play some Sarah McLaughlin songs, and it would have been really effective, and you would have been opening up your wallets like crazy right now. But here's what I am saying. As part of our pursuit for, to be faithfully present people, as Jesus' followers in this time and place, let's continue to use our money as a display and proclamation of the very grace of God to the world. Jesus Christ left heaven, took on flesh, lived a poor and simple life. The day of his death came and he possessed nothing but a garment and then he lost that too. But in his poverty, humbling himself to the point of death on a cross, he purchased and secured eternal glories, the eternal riches of life with God and his kingdom forever. If that's the story of the world, then friends, you are free to hold your money open-handedly. You are now free to give a lot of it away. You're free to not base your joy or your hope in the balance of your bank account or in what the stock market is doing on any given day or week. You're free from the delusional insanity of a money-sick culture that's convinced that the next raise, the next home project, the next car, the next toy, the next gadget will satisfy you because now you have found the satisfaction from the only source of satisfaction, which is Jesus Christ himself. Only Christians are genuinely free to use money like this. Only Christians are genuinely free to use money like this. And when we do, it stands out as this beautiful counterculture that proclaims the grace of God. So I'll close today with just one example of that. When you have time uh, later on today or later this week, I would encourage you to check out a website called Aspiring to the Median. Aspiring to the Median. You can find it at aspiringtothemedian.com. Uh, a few folks connected to Liberty Churches in Philadelphia, some of our sister churches, have been involved in this for uh, a couple years now. And here's the idea. Uh, as a practical outworking of God's grace, the idea with this is that you choose an objective limit for your spending, and then you give the rest away. You set a limit for your spending, which is below what you actually are taking in, and then you give the rest away. Now, I want to be really clear about this. This is not the only right way for Christians to live. But it's an incredibly compelling, gospel-grounded approach. And I think you'll find this the way I did on that website. It's laid out in a really practical and plausible way. There's, there's calculators on it about you know, what you would set that objective limit at based on where you live and the size of your family. They kind of get into all the method of that if you want to do a, a real deep dive into it. It's laid out in a practical and plausible way. So Take a few minutes today, later this week, to explore that, to really wrestle with that idea, especially if you've never considered anything like that before. And truly, if nothing else, 
See it as an example of how some Christians are pursuing faithful presence with their money in the midst of a moment in a culture that desperately needs, needs it. So church, because God is the most generous giver, our greed becomes generosity. And because God is the genuinely loving one, our guilt can become genuine love. May you today, wherever you found yourself coming in this morning, may you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. May you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in response, may your money, may our money, always display and proclaim his grace to the world. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Our Lord and our God, you have given us this gospel of our risen Savior and Master, Jesus Christ. We ask that you would, even as we joyfully receive this news for ourselves, as we are wholly dependent and always have been upon your grace, may we now gratefully share it with others. May we ever give glory to you, as the Apostle Paul put it, by whose grace alone we are what we are. We pray this through the same Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.